This is Lend Me Your Ear. Conversations worth hearing. With Liam Halligan. Welcome to Lend Me Your Ear. In this episode, I talk to John Rossman, the tech entrepreneur who worked alongside Jeff Bezos as he built Amazon. America's third most valuable company after Microsoft and Apple, Amazon has a stock market valuation approaching a trillion dollars, bigger than the national income of Switzerland, Taiwan, Sweden, and all but 17 countries in the world. The company accounts for almost half of all US internet-based retailing, up from less than a fifth back in 2011. And this e-commerce giant, whose activities now range from retailing to entertainment, health and life sciences, is increasingly in the firing line over subjects including data use, market power and tax. I discussed these issues with John Rossman, a proper tech insider who launched and led some of Amazon's most important divisions. He's written a book, Think Like Amazon, 50 and a half ideas to become a digital leader. And I started by asking John, what makes a digital leader? There's lots of great definitions and and ways to think about it, but I think it comes down to it's not about the technology. It's not about cloud computing or mobile or whatever. But I think it's really about being coming digital is really about two attributes. Um, and while they sound similar, they're actually distinctly different. So the first attribute is speed. And if you think about speed, speed is really about um, efficiency of motion, right? And it's about doing one thing, a repetitive thing, extremely well and extremely efficiently. Well, that's really within an organization, that's the discipline of operational excellence and 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 paying attention to the details and knocking down friction and cost and, and the pursuit of quality. Um, that's a key attribute for a digital organization. But then you also have to have the secondary attribute, which is agility. And agility in an organization is the ability to sense and make change happen, right? Both big change and small change. And you have to you have to have your head up and you have to take in information and you have to sense when it's time to make change. And it's really the combination of those two capabilities that I believe may, will, will determine the, the winners um, in this next generation. It's the companies that both operate extremely well and extremely efficiently and are able to be innovative on a systematic basis. And I think that that one of the, the key awakenings that organizations are having, which is we can't just hope that innovation happens. We actually have to have a process for it. And so a lot of the book is connecting how operational excellence feeds into innovation. And it's the different ways or manners in which you, you become an innovative organization, borrowing from the playbook of Amazon. You can't just wait for the innovative muse to strike you when you're staring into space. There has to actually be a system there and a structure. And that really shines through in in your book. But I was surprised reading your book just how innovative Amazon is. Even to this day, you were there from 2002 onwards, really at the zenith of the company's growth. It was only, what, eight years old when you joined, right? Um, That's right. But even now, since you've left, John, Amazon's taking out like 80 patents a year, and that's just on its supply chain, even now? Yeah. yeah. So, um, in fact, the, the, the tempo or the pace of their supply chain innovation 
as as denoted by the number of patents has been increasing. So for the past three years, it's been right around 80 patents a year. Supply chain is just a hotbed of innovation at Amazon and a lot of other companies, and and they they see you know supply chain and logistics is just an absolute golden asset for their organization and a core part of the customer experience and and so they are i think increasing the the number of bets and in innovation that they are doing not decreasing i and i truly think i know we want to talk about kind of big tech and everything Jeff's biggest concern for Amazon is is slowing down. It's becoming a bureaucracy. Uh, everything else will pass. You can adapt to, but but once you become a bureaucracy, I think it's very hard to change. And so I think that is truly always been his long term focus um, is how do we stay an entrepreneurial. Uh, fast-moving, highly accountable, highly engaged organization. And so, so many of these ideas from Amazon are about how to continue to have speed, uh, accountability, um, and nimbleness as an organization. Now, you ran Amazon's merchant services, right? So, you helped the big brands like Toys R Us, Marks & Spencers, uh, existing bricks-and-mortar companies Amazon helped them to set up and run their e-commerce, and you were you were really spearheading that. Yeah, so I got to run two businesses at Amazon. So I was there from early 2002 through late 2005. I launched the marketplace business, which today is 58% of all units shipped and sold. And then I ran enterprise services, which was the large e-commerce retailers where we ran their e-commerce infrastructure. So we provided website technology, branded fulfillment, branded customer service for brands like Marks & Spencer in the UK. Target, Toys R Us, and a number of other great brands. That's really interesting because what we're going to do in this in this chat, I've picked out half a dozen or so of your chapters, and each chapter is it's just a few pages long. It's very easy to get your head around, even for a busy executive. But each chapter is a tightly focused idea, uh, and the first idea. It really struck me that you will have learned a lot about this when you were engaging with those existing bricks and mortar companies, often highly successful companies, with their own cultures, with their own bureaucracies. And you were the Amazon guy coming in, telling them what they needed to do. And you say, idea five, don't go along to get along. And you quote Peter Drucker, management management is doing things right. Leadership is doing the right things. A lot of what you were doing must have been not just introducing the tech that the companies wanted, e-commerce know-how. You were coming up against, I'm sure, existing ideas within the company, existing empires and vested interests within the company. That must have been quite a political job. Yeah, it really was. And I came from a career of consulting. And so I've very familiar with you know how to navigate and the types of challenges you're going to run into organizations when you're trying to spur a new idea or a small business. And really, I think the overall notion was like, oh, this is such a minor channel. Why are we even paying attention to it? Yeah, we'll let Amazon run it, you know, and everything. And I think that history has shown like what a tragic mistake that was, right? Um, it does take time for customers and business to adopt into new methods and new channels. But if you've got to have an eye for things that are distinctly 
better and different. And even if they're small, you have to pay attention to them. You have to be curious. You have to overinvest. And, and you can't just flip a switch and all of a sudden develop this capability. And, and I really think that a lot of those brands outsource their future to, to Amazon. And, and while they learned some things from Amazon, I think Amazon built and learned a whole lot more from them. And, and I think it's an astounding piece of history that these companies outsource their e-commerce to Amazon back in the day. But you don't just go along to get along, do you? Sometimes you got to have you got to make tough decisions. It's nice to be nice, but it's not always the right thing to do. Yeah, and I think that that, you know, at least here in the states, you know, the pendulum around how we work together has swung so hard to, you know, we have to be collaborative, we have to hear everybody, everybody has to be, you know, valued, that nice has become the predominant default. And it's so easy for people to to be personally insulted when all you're doing is having <laughs> a, t- a, t- a tough conversation, right? And social cohesion is just the, the natural tendency that, you know, when we work together, we want to get along, we want to be friends, we we, we want to be respectful, but you have to balance being right and having data-driven, customer-obsessed conversations and doing the right thing for the business versus how we work together and, and, and being being polite, being collaborative. And all Amazon's trying to do, it's, it's not that those things aren't important. It's just that it's not the most important thing. Being right is the most important thing. Being clear, being fast, um, having the great idea is more important than getting, than getting along. And so I, I think that just recognizing that and creating a culture. And the best way to get through that is to bring data, right? When you have facts, when you have data, when you have deep customer insights, that's the best way to cut through all of these other types of politeness that go on within an organization, right? That it's that it's too easy to become a country club and just try to optimize for a short-term basis. And that you and that a, a board and a leadership team, if if they're keeping their heads up, what they'll do is they'll they'll balance out both optimizing for short-term results, but also building the business of the future and keeping tension in the wire for growth. We're spooling through. Idea 15 caught my eye, not least because you quote Cicero at the top. Frugality includes all other virtues. And you tell the story of how uh, Jeff Bezos would say, every dollar saved, ladies and gentlemen, is a dollar extra that we can invest in innovating and improving our business. Yeah. So, you know, there's 14 leadership principles um, at Amazon. Frugality is one of those leadership principles. I th- I think certainly, you know, again, back in the day, frugality was truly important. We were, we were fighting for survival and it truly was like every dollar that we could save, we could invest into free everyday shipping or, you know, some other marketing program. I think Amazon is kind of way past that point, but they keep frugality as a leadership principle because it, it helps an organization to not become sloppy, right? Not to not to um, have hubris. And so frugality is just another way of staying humble and paying attention to the details. And, and that's why I think it's tremendously important relative to this notion of you have to stay hungry, you have to stay aggressive, you have to stay on the offense because we become our own worst enemies. And when you become fat and sloppy and and um, develop that sense of entitlement, those are the hallmarks that bring down great companies and great societies. I often hear that expressed, John. You've got to keep acting like a small company, even if you're a 
big company for whom at least medium term survival is not an issue. You know, I after I left Amazon, I was a partner with a, a restructuring firm called Alvarez and Marcel, great firm. And my favorite clients were the restructuring clients because they were in crisis and they were willing to do anything to create a future. And my hardest clients were always successful teams and successful companies. And, and they would say like, oh, we want to create change. We want to experiment. We want to innovate. We want to hold each other accountable. We want to do all of these things. But yet they weren't really willing to do the hard things because they were successful at this point. They didn't have to do those things. And so that takes a tremendous amount of awareness for successful companies to change and to create the future not many companies actually make these transitions. And, and you know, there's so much evidence relative to that. And that's the whole story of digital disruption, you know, and everything, right? The, the first component to it is always awareness and discussion at the board and leadership level. We'll just take time out from the ideas and come back to them in a minute. You just mentioned disruption. So from 1973 to 83, 35% of the Fortune 1000 companies were new, so they changed in that decade. 83 to 93, it was 45%. 1993 to 2003, it was 60% of the Fortune 1000 companies were new. And in the 10 years from 2003, it was 70%. We're seeing accelerating disruption. So, Pretty much any incumbent business, you've got to always be on your guard. Yeah, I mean, and to me, you know, there's always two sides to these statistics. On one side, that's a tremendous statement or testimony to, you know, the ability for new companies to, to grow and to compete and be successful, right? But it also demonstrates how difficult it is for successful companies to go to that next level and to continue that pattern. You know, there is opportunity to compete and create new companies and and uh, there will be change and turnover, but I think it just shows how difficult it is once you leave, uh, you get to a certain level of success. And what tends to happen is we tend to optimize for short-term financial results instead of continuing to invest in creating and growing new businesses. Talking about the size of companies, but they should act small. A famous anecdote about Amazon is the two pizza teams, the idea of small teams. And in Idea 20, you stress that. You call it pizza for all. But there's another word in there, the magic of small autonomous teams, John. And you say that it isn't really about the size of the teams. It's about their autonomy. One way that Amazon organizes, and not every team at Amazon is a two-pizza team, but core capabilities, things like the inventory receive process or the image service or the payment service, those types of core capabilities are organized into small teams that are called two-pizza teams. And a two-pizza team owns a core capability that has to be world-class, and they deliver a service that can be used internally as well as oftentimes externally, right? That's the whole platform strategy of turning capabilities inside out and letting others use those capabilities. So a two-pizza team is a cross-functional team that owns a core capability for a long period of time. And their, and their number one um, metric or, or long-term goal is about adoption, create, creating and serving value to other internal and external clients. And so the concept is, is that 
um, you know, we're familiar from an architectural standpoint of this concept of service-oriented um, architectures, which are really about identifying the core capabilities and building and encapsulating them in software. Well, two pizza teams are really a service-oriented organization structure where a team owns those core components for a long period of time and makes them world-class and strives for adoption. Is the hierarchy of that team, are they flat? Is somebody demonstrably in charge? Do they all get the blame if something goes wrong? I mean, how, how does the, the, that small production unit, if you like, how is that in and of itself managed? Yeah, so uh, kind of yes to all of those. So it is a, it is a very flat team, right? If it's 10 or, or fewer, there, there's not much internal hierarchy to it. There is definitely a leader. There is a, a, a CEO, if you would, of yeah. that um, yeah. capability. And one of the benefits of this structure is you grow tremendous leadership, right? And and that those those leaders, those two pizza team leaders tend to be, you know, really heads up business-oriented technical leaders that are figuring out, like, how do I compete? How do I build a service that that uh, delivers a tr- tremendous amount of value um, internally and externally? Depending upon the situation, you know, one or more are going to get both the acclaim or the, the blame uh, relative. But, you know, really, that's based off of both everyday metrics as well as long-term objectives and goals that are core to the team. Okay, let's move on to the fourth of the sixth ideas we're going to look at. And we've really been building up to this one, process versus bureaucracy, creating processes that scale. That, of course, is what Amazon's all about. And the quotation you start that chapter with, scaling up is every entrepreneur's dream, of course, and their nightmare. Hypergrowth can be terrifying, and it's most often success that kills great companies. Now, that's a quote by Vern Harnish, who's the consultant, the management guru, who's well known for creating the Rockefeller habits, the the leadership ideas based on the practices of the great oil titan of the late 19th and early 20th century, John D. Rockefeller. Tell us how scaling up can kill companies. So I I think Amazon obviously gets a lot of publicity and press around being innovative. But I don't think they get quite enough recognition for being the world-class operator that they are. And so when you were an operations leader at Amazon, one of the the things you were always figuring out was how do I scale on a year-over-year basis? And scaling at Amazon has a real clear definition, which is you have to be able to do more units on a declining cost Per unit, which which is this forcing function that forces you to become more efficient over time, right? And what a lot of companies do is they think about scaling is just one half of that equation, which is being able to do more. Yeah. But they don't, over a long period of time, look for the efficiencies of scale. And so at Amazon, as a leader, you are always thinking about how do I do more? And doing more isn't just about more production. It's about better cost, better quality, high, higher production predictability, being able to handle different nuances that come your way in an elegant manner. And so you're always thinking about scale. And when you do that over a long period of time, one of the things you're always thinking about is how do I define really good processes? How do I instrumentate them, put the, put great metrics and data in them so I can have operational control of them? And how do I automate the right pieces of those processes? All of this is about well-defined processes that are always getting broken down into smaller components so that those components can be managed on a more individual basis. So this chapter is really about 
the way to fight bureaucracy is by having extremely well-defined processes with an operational excellence tone and tempo to it to seek perfection in those and always be thinking about scale as both being able to do more, but on a better economic and quality basis. Idea 41, John. I had to ask you about AI, given that it's on so many people's minds at the moment. AI and the implications of AI on our labor force, on the British economy, where we are, of course, one of the world's leaders in artificial intelligence, are very much uh, at the forefront of politics at the moment through the Brexit haze. The quote you use here is, intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. That's Stephen Hawking, somebody who lived and worked close to where I'm sitting in uh, Cambridge here in the UK. Do you think AI will lead to uh, a shrinking of, of the labour force across the Western world? Do you think we will have more free time on our hands? Do you think there will be an issue about some people not being able to find work because of AI? Well, I, I, anytime there's dramatic change, you know, there's there's winners and there's losers, and it does create change imposed on on labor and on the workforce and on education and everything. Even and highly so educated do, labor, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so, and so, my my hope is is that um, for for every place where it impacts a job. Two were created, and 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 that's essentially been the history of technology. Is is while labor has changed, it's created more opportunity, um, and that's my hope. But at the end of the day, it it doesn't really matter. Like it's happening, and as a country and as an economy, if we resist that change guess what? In a generation, we won't be competitive because you know that other economies and other industries are, are going full throttle into this. So from my standpoint, we don't have much of, of an option as, as economies in order to do this because of the way worldwide economics work over just a generation or two. And so we have to do it. So I think we ought to do it in a proactive manner that seeks to create uh, the new jobs, but follows up with both policy and education to help people be successful in the new demands that are going to be there. Just touching on something you just said there, to what extent do you think the fact that the Western world and particularly the United States has created, nurtured, developed these huge hegemonic tech companies, to what extent do you think the existence of those companies is going to help the West maintain its leadership role across the world. We're obviously uh, living through an era where the West is being challenged. China's on America's shoulder in terms of absolute size. We can all see in terms of demography that it's the big emerging markets that are going to be ruling the roost in 10, 20, 30 years time. They already account for most of global growth, of course. So to what extent do you think the big tech companies are playing a sort of geopolitical, geostrategic role in the story of the West versus the East? Um, my thoughts or position would be, I think that they do play uh, an oversized role, uh, both locally in our communities, nationally in, in how we operate, and internationally in terms of you know, kind of the, the power balance. But I, the thing that I'm most concerned of relative to, you know, big tech is its impact in creating the next generation of of small and mid-sized companies that have, I think have really been 
the engine of growth and competitiveness uh, within within the U.S. Like that has always been our core strength is in in creating the next, not just the next new thing, but the next new company. And um, those companies have such acquisition power that they they basically are acquiring all of the great next new companies. And so I think that there's my biggest concern for big tech um, isn't about data. It isn't about any of the other concerns. It's about, are we killing the essence of what has made the West and the U.S. into its unique position by not creating thousands of new startups that create mid-sized companies that create competitiveness within all of this opportunity here. That's a, that's a fabulous observation, if I may say so, John, because you, you talk and you write passionately about how this huge company, Amazon, has been so good at innovating. But historically, it's been the little guys where the real innovation has happened. And there must be a danger, mustn't there, that the existence of these wildly successful, and we all like success, but these wildly successful companies is stifling, at least at the margin, that very innovation, that very essence of capitalism. And, and, you know, and this is where I diverge a little bit, which is, you know, everybody likes to complain about these companies, but they are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, right? Which is grow and optimize as much as you can. Like that, that's, that's fiduciary responsibility. Like that's what you have to do. Yeah. So yeah. the, the, all of this falls on policy creation, right? And so we have to create the right policies to help manage and be a steward to to create the 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 playing field of innovation and competitiveness that we want. And so, you know, while everybody wants to complain about these companies like no 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 no, this is this is what policy needs to do is to manage these large companies. So let's go back in history. Let's think about policy. Let's think about the turn of the century, the 19th into the 20th century. We've mentioned Rockefeller, incredibly successful businessman, employed in huge numbers of people, organized an anarchic industry, basically. And yet in the end, I think most people would agree he and the other big trusts, they had to be reined in. That's what Teddy Roosevelt did, a Republican, unlike uh, his relative who followed in the White House in the 30s, in the end, politicians had to get hold of the really big companies and say, what you're doing for all your success is you're actually stifling competition now and you're threatening consent, the popular consent for our capitalist system on which it is built. Is it hyperbole, John, to compare the big tech companies now and their market dominance with the big trusts, if you like, of the late 19th century, the United States. Um, it's 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 nuanced. Like none of these companies fit classic definitions of monopolistic uh, behavior because there's been no consumer harm. And in Amazon standpoint, like they actually don't have a dominant market share in any category. Uh, that they operate in, but yet they have oversized impact and influence in the global economy and do have that risk of of stifling uh, small company growth and innovation and being able to be competitive. And so I do think that there is new policy uh, that is required to help um, properly govern um, and and uh, 
provide oversight relative to these to these very large and and powerful companies. It's a, perhaps a little bit churlish, a little bit unfair to ask you, John. You know, you were obviously at Amazon. You played a key role at a critical time in the formation of a world-class company by any definition. You're clearly very proud of that, and you're very right to be proud of that. But do these companies now have a bit of an image problem, do you think? Or do they need to at least manage their image better to deal with some of these concerns that we agree exist? Um, yeah, it, it, they certainly have an image situation. I, I, I think on any, you know, if you take Amazon standpoint, like it is the most trusted brand in America, but yet there is absolutely, uh, they're getting a lot of attention and they're an easy magnet for uh, complaining and for negative press. And so they absolutely have a, a problem. But I think the the bigger thing that a company like Amazon is wrestling with, they 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 still have this startup underdog ethos and everything, right? But guess what? They're no longer a startup underdog. In fact, they're not only just a large company; they are they are an influencer. They're one of the few influencers um, uh, that that's in the economy, and I think they really need to. To, to balance out, you know, what's best for shareholders versus what's best for communities and for overall competitiveness. And so I, I think that that's just the, the leadership challenge that's new to them for, you know, the next 10 or 15 years. It strikes me that just like Rockefeller provided cheap heating oil, <laughs> uh, which meant that it was difficult for politicians to get their arms around the problem. Um, Amazon is almost indispensable now to a lot of consumers in the West uh, and indeed yeah. around the world. And that's and that's why it is such a policy conundrum, because if there are is this issue of stifling small businesses, if they just gobble up all the other companies in the end, you do undermine, don't you, the the consent on which capitalism is built? I mean, you know, let's talk about a specific aspect of that and and where I think the EU is likely going to be the leader in setting policy, which is, you know, um, Amazon to date uh, has has paid zero or very little uh, corporate tax because they have basically, while they operate as a very profitable company, they take every dollar of profit and reinvest it in either scaling or new innovation, right? And so they haven't uh, declared gap profitability, so they don't have to pay corporate taxes. So this whole notion that companies create profit and then our taxes are based off of that profit, well, that might be a notion that needs to be reconsidered because, because that is really the game that Amazon is playing. And nobody should be mad at Amazon for figuring out that game. What we, what we should be frustrated with is that, oh, we need to find a new policy to tax companies that play the game in this style. I absolutely agree with that, John. It's the legal obligation, the legal duty of a CEO, certainly in, in this country and I know in yours as well, to maximize shareholder profit. They can be sued if they don't. So in the end, Amazon is working within the system of which it is part. But on the other hand, it strikes me as, a, as, a, as an outsider, as a journalist, that the links now between these big tech companies, between the political class, the policymaking class, it's all getting very, very incestuous. And in the end, that kind of thing 
can harm public confidence. I, I, I think it is. I agree completely. Moving on, I must ask you, John, it's slightly outside of uh, the scope of our conversation, but I must ask you, it's something I'm thinking about a lot lately. I know a lot of politicians here in the UK are. I was recently at the party conferences that we have each year. And again, while Brexit was the huge shadow looming over everything, I went to several fringe meetings, these kind of side discussions where we have where the real conversations happen on the future of the high street. What do you think the high street's going to look like across the Western world in a few years' time? Because that's another area of concern. High streets are being hollowed out. Small independent shops that provide the things that, are, that make life interesting are going bankrupt. Once you've got e-commerce being so dominant, you don't get those community bonds that come around, that develop from local commerce the way that you used to. Do we need to rethink the high street in the internet age? Well, I, I think the the transition that we're seeing here in the states is that 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 local retail is transitioning into services um, and products, and not just products, right? And so, yeah. so what people are innate or or core needs are around socialization right like we 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 want community we want to be with others and so while e-commerce maybe provides um a better experience for you know accessing everyday products and is certainly having its impact that that doesn't mean we don't have the need or the desire for community socialization and and it's really around services that um small businesses can meet customers and create great businesses. And so, you know, whether it's it's more restaurants or more entertainment or products with a complexity and a service factor to them where customers need to have consultation um, and the ability to work with experts, like it's just forcing change in the style in which we yeah. engage customers. Yeah. The final idea I wanted to... Um put to you, John. Idea 44, it, it was my favourite one because it's all about um, communication, the narrative about narratives. Ditch the PowerPoint to gain clarity, you say. And then George Bernard Shaw, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion it has taken place. We've all been there, haven't we? In business, in our personal lives, talking to our kids. Yeah, I mean, and so essentially, like, you know, what, how do most ideas, projects, proposals get communicated? It's kind of through PowerPoint, through a speaker, whereas forcing yourself to write it out in in an independent document that can be read by somebody and understood without it being explained, it, it has benefits that abound. First, it forces the writers of that document to think things through in a, in clarity, which is both simplicity and completeness of thought. And they have to tell a story to their audience relative to that idea. And then guess what? It's more demanding for the audience, for management, to actually have to sit and read that story and to understand something. And then the last benefit that I'll talk about is that ability to pass it on and refer back to it. Um, uh, and, and so it helps the repetitive nature when we are talking about complex ideas and complex 
um, programs and investments, we need to be able to talk about them and get to a level of clarity that we aren't talking past each other. And that's that's the challenge in all of this is these are subtle, nuanced, difficult topics and forcing teams to write them out and then read them is actually a much better way to go about it. But this is, this is kind of core to the whole, like we need to spend more time working in the future and that get, gets to be a little messy and it takes time. It's a classic go slow to go fast. But if we take more time up front in getting to the clarity of exactly what it is we're proposing, how we'd go about it, how to do it in an incremental agile mindset, we will execute so much better um, on those innovative complex we don't projects. Do, we don't do PowerPoint at Amazon. You quote Jeff Bezos as saying, we write narratively structured six-page memos. Some have the clarities of angels singing Others come in at the other end of the spectrum. It's been fabulous talking to you, John Rossman. Thank you very much. Liam, really appreciate it. You did a great job. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you've enjoyed this discussion, why not subscribe at lendmeyourear.co.uk or using the iTunes store. Lend me your ear. Conversations worth hearing.